an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. On this week's episode, Batgirl is a movie you're never going to see. Its release has been canceled, even though $90 million had been spent on the production. So why did Warner Brothers Discovery make the seemingly crazy decision to scrap it? Plus, my conversation with actor Aubrey Plaza, who stars in the new movie, Emily the Criminal. She talks about why she believes independent film still deserves a place at the multiplex. It's scary to me that we're going to write off this experience and only reserve it for the huge franchise corporate films that have taken over Hollywood. But first, here's what I've been thinking about this week. An experienced and talented Hollywood executive walks into her studio chief's office. How much do you make a week? He asks her. She tells him, put together a list of all your subordinates who make more than you do. He then says, she promptly writes down the names of two dozen people, all men. Every one of them makes more than she does, some nearly twice as much, and they all call her boss. Not far from that studio office, a Chinese-American actor considers the parts that he's offered. Servile houseboy, pigtailed opium peddler, slaver issuing risable pigeon, all racist caricatures and none paying a living wage. The way he saw it, he was a Chinatown nobody working for change while a white man told him how to act. As current and credible as those accounts might sound, They happened about 80 years ago, and they come from a work of fiction. Both stories were written by Anthony Mara in his sublime and unfortunately topical new Hollywood novel called Mercury Pictures Presents. The book starts inside the offices of an idiosyncratic studio executive named Artie Feldman. Artie wasn't known for his joie de vivre, but he usually didn't fantasize about ending it all this close to lunch. Maria wondered if the Senate investigation into motion picture war propaganda was giving him agita. But no, the crisis at hand was on his head. His bald spot had finally grown too large for his toupee to conceal. That's Carlotta Brenton. She reads the audiobook version of Mercury Pictures Presents. There are plenty of laughs at the novel start, but then the story darkens considerably. Mara's World War II-era novel is a work of creative invention, but its foundations are rooted in reality, not only as Hollywood once was, but also as it remains. Mara's fictional characters, thanks to how we connect with them as readers, accomplish what countless academic studies of Hollywood exclusion cannot do. They make their experiences matter. The novel's disquieting scene of gendered pay equity, as I mentioned earlier, is hardly a vestige of some forgotten era. In fact, a 2019 study found that female movie performers earn about 44% of what their male counterparts take home. And the Chinese-American actors' lamentations about race-based exclusion, they could have popped up at a Hollywood coffee shop this morning. Here's a clip from 2018's Crazy Rich Asians. Can we go trampoline? 
I you haven't finished your nuggets yet, sweetie. Okay, there's a lot of children starving in America, right? I mean, take a look at her. She's American, huh? Really skinny. You want to look like that? No. Nina Jacobson was one of the film's producers, and she told me that not one, but two senior studio executives said when she was trying to find backers for the film, and I'm quoting them now, do they have to be Asian? Yes, they said that. So Hollywood hasn't really changed that much. And if you want to understand how Hollywood operates as a business, there are plenty of riveting nonfiction accounts, especially when the industry does its worst. Final Cut, Dreams and Disaster in the Making of Heaven's Gate, Indecent Exposure, and The Devil's Candy Among the Best. But if you want to understand how the town's exclusionary behavior makes people feel, don't read the latest academic report on Hollywood's largely abysmal commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Read Mercury Pictures Presents and feel the pain firsthand. Coming up after the break, Aubrey Plaza. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn, and now my conversation with actor and producer Aubrey Plaza. We talked about the state of independent film, her involvement in the restoration of an historic movie theater in L.A., her love of video stores, and about her new movie. It's called Emily the Criminal. It's a thriller about a gig worker, played by Plaza, who's drowning in student loans. It's also the first feature film from writer-director John Patton Ford. The name of the movie is Emily the Criminal, but it's not just the title. It's literally how Emily is seen by the world, not as a person, but as a person with a record. Can you talk about how she can't escape that definition? Yes, she does have a criminal record, some kind of discrepancy from her past that um, is still kind of haunting her when the film opens and preventing her from getting a job yet again. Um, And it's a frustrating kind of system that she's up against, which I think today's young generation can can fully relate to. Um, And she doesn't see herself as a criminal, but the choices that she's made and the choices that she's going to make in the film kind of lead her down that path. And I think um, the, the movie kind of begs the question of what is a criminal? In these days when, you know, the criminals are really at the fucking top. And I guess, yeah, and I guess, too, if you limit somebody's career and livelihood choices because they have a record, what alternatives do they have? Exactly. Yeah, it's a broken system. I mean, that's kind of, there's, you know, the movie isn't preachy, I don't think, at all. Um, It's a fun kind of thriller um, that keeps keeps moving, but there is that social commentary and it does kind of touch on that without, I don't think without shoving it down anyone's throat, but it just, yeah, it's uh, it's not fair. It's a frustrating system that people are up against, people that have made choices and um, have histories like that and, the, and they're just trying to do the best they can. 
It's also a story about the cost of an education. Emily is carrying about $70,000 of student loans, and her payments don't even go to principal. They're just covering interest. So she's really falling further and further behind. And one of her friends says her life is insane because she's going to Portugal in a couple of days and has to get Mm -hmm. ready for an 11-day trip. And Emily gets to go into a fancy office every day to deliver lunch. And it seems like so much of your character is literally on the outside looking in. Yes, it's true. Um, I love that about the movie that, you know, in the beginning of the film, you kind of see her wheeling her her food delivery cart past these glass windows that she's peering through and she's seeing her peers, people that are her age, um, but that are just that just happen to be more privileged than her that don't happen to be drowning in debt and student loans. And um, she's just one of the you know, she's she's one of the unlucky um, people that is coming up in, in, in these times, which so many people are in this, in this generation. And it's, uh, it's unfair. And I think, yeah, it's, um, it's voyeuristic kind of in a way from her point of view in the beginning, she sees, she sees what she thinks she wants. It's also a story about class and this ever widening gap between the haves and have nots and what access women have to power, especially if they're women of color, because your character has a friend who looks like she has power, but she doesn't really. And Emily is working what I think we could say is almost legalized indentured servitude. So how much of that message was part of its appeal? That message was part of the appeal for me. I think the relevancy of the film, although it was written years ago, um, pre-pandemic and pre-Trump era, actually, but it's, um, you know, it's sad to say that things haven't changed that much (laughs) since back, you know, when John wrote the film, but he, he, he wrote it from his own personal experiences. He worked that actual job in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, um, before the gig economy really got going. But, um, but same, same idea there. And I think it's appealing to me to be in a film that is not only an, a thrilling and entertaining movie, but also has something to say about the times that we're living in. And I feel that it's, um, it could be a cathartic movie for a younger generation that's up against the same things that Emily, you know, is up against and that um, in some ways it's kind of a revenge thriller. I want to ask you a little bit about, like, how you got interested in movies because so much has changed in how we consume entertainment and how audiences are programmed or steered towards certain things because of algorithms. You used to browse. You used to work in video stores, right? Where you had an ability to actually hold movies up, look at their covers, see what random quotes were on it. But outside of how video stores got you interested in working as an actor, what did they teach you about how people find content and discover something that they might not be looking for that an algorithm is never going to show them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm so I'm so grateful that I grew up in a time of video stores where I got to hold, you know, VHS tapes and DVDs in my hand and rifle through cases of DVDs and just decide and just be surprised. I mean, I think that if there's an element of of control now that people have over over finding content or something that is just so there's no spontaneity and there's no surprises. And I don't know, I, I don't want a robot to tell me what I like and what I should like. And um, so I'm happy that I grew up like that because I, I've watched things that I never, I, I just discovered things that I never would have otherwise discovered. And I don't think that an algorithm is going to do that for you. Can you remember some random movie that you picked up and you're just oh my God, what is this thing? Yeah, I mean, no, no, independent films. I mean, I grew, I grew up 
you know, watching blockbuster movies like in the 80s, you know, I was born in 1984. So I grew up in the 80s and the 90s watching, you know, Spielberg movies and blockbuster movies and rom-coms, all the rom-coms of the 90s and whatever movie, you know, they were showing on television, Armageddon or whatever they were showing over and over again. Um, and I love all those movies. But it was when I was working in the video store that I started to discover Christopher Guest movies and John Waters movies and um, just random independent films, Whit Stillman movies and Hal Hartley movies and just movies like that that I never would have, you know, I love my family and, my, and you know, they all have great taste, but they're not, I didn't grow up in Hollywood. I didn't grow up with people that could say, you know, here, check out this filmmaker. You know, I just didn't have that. And so for me, it was everything. Discovering independent films has changed my life, I think. I mean, if you asked any movie executive today, what do you know about Metropolitan? They'd say the magazine, and you'd say no, right. the Whit Stillman movie. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Who? Um, I know it's so sad. And you're involved in videos as well, right? Isn't it in a comeback? I am. I'm. A, I believe I'm a founding member. Although yeah. you know, I've done. You know, I support. I, I'm very supportive of them, and I can't. I can't wait to get into that venue and host a screening there. I haven't done it yet. Um, the pandemic kind of ruined that. So it's a it's a video store and a theater in Eagle Rock. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's going to be a video store where you can browse and you can you can find videos, but then it's all there's also going to be a screening room, so we can we can do events there. And um, I'm excited. It's a, it's going to be a hangout for cinephiles and people that are interested in films, and we'll get to show good stuff there. I want to ask you about film festivals because this movie premiered in Park City or virtually in Park City, right? And it, that's yes, where it's, it did. that's where it found a distributor. And festivals are starting to come back and run now, although there's still a couple that are remaining virtual. That has been a huge part of your career. And it's a huge part of how people used to see movies together in a theater. And I'm wondering, what did you take away from that experience of maybe seeing other independent films in film festival settings and that whole world? Because it almost feels like it's a vestige of the past now. Ugh, I know this one kills me. I want to cry about it. It you was can. so I was I was I know. I was so sad um this year when Sundance got canceled in person and obviously we have to be safe and you know they they had to do what they had to do but um but yeah, there's nothing like being at Sundance and being surrounded by people that have the similar passion to you and then being inspired by other people's films and to me that's I'm so grateful that so many of my movies have gotten into that festival. Um, it's always been, that's like, that's the, my favorite part of the year. It's my favorite kind of aspect of this industry is really that experience because it's not, you know, every, of course everyone wants to sell their movies, um, but it doesn't ever feel like it's about money necessarily. It feels like a time of celebration and a recognition of for people that are, that are just making art. And um, that's, yeah, it's everything that I love about movies. So. You are more willing than most people to work with directors who are either first-timers or don't have a lot of credits to their name. And I've talked to other actors who say the issue or the difficulty with that is as an actor, you imagine the best version of that movie. And what you have to really make sure you're also acknowledging is the worst version of that movie. So when you're contemplating working with somebody who isn't established, because you do that a lot, what are the things that you have to have in place? Because that's how filmmakers get ahead. Somebody like you says, yes, I'll take a risk with you. I'll jump in with you, even if you haven't done this before. 
Well, that's why I like producing um, because there's an element of control there. You know, my opinion as a producer matters. It's different when you're just an actor, but I, you know, collaboration is key. And I think, you know, the qualities in a first-time director that I look for are openness and flexibility and um, humility because I think a first-timer that believes that they know everything and that their way is the highway um, is that they fall into their own trap. And that trap is you don't know shit because you haven't made as many movies as all the people in the crew have that are surrounding you and supporting you. And you have to listen to these people, these gaffers, these grips, these boom ops, the sound people. The, these people have made 30 films. These people have been on set for years and years, and you, and you haven't. So the first timers that I like to work with are people that understand that. They have a respect for the crew and for the process, and they let the movie evolve. They don't, they don't control it. They respect it, and they treat it like it's their own child, and they let it evolve. And that's the thing that I look for, and I'm happy to work with the first timer if they have those qualities. It used to be the case that at the box office, the top three or four movies would account for like a third of all tickets sold. This year, it's like 70 to 80%. Like people are going to see Top Gun Maverick or Jurassic World or whatever, and they're seeing yeah. nothing else. That Ugh. the gap between the haves and have-nots or the rich and the poor is getting increasingly uh, wider. Does I that know. concern you as somebody who... Maybe, I don't know if you want to make Top Gun Maverick too, but the kinds of movies that you make just don't work at theaters. They don't even get released anymore, generally. Well, you know, we're to, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, still, I'm still hanging on. I feel like I'm hanging on, on the, you know, by a thread here. And I, I just, the communal experience to me, there's nothing like it. Watching a film with strangers and experiencing something with strangers is how human beings connect with each other. And we're living in a world where there's so much isolation. And I think it's scary to me that we're going to, that we're going to write off this experience and only, you know, only reserve it for the huge franchise corporate films that have taken over Hollywood. And like, you know, I, I'm not, I'll do big movies. I like all kinds of movies. I'll do whatever you want me to do, but, um, I don't, I, I don't, I will, I will not stop believing in, in the theatrical experience. And my belief is that if a great film is made, no matter how, you know, what the budget is for it, if it's if it's undeniable and it's fantastic, people will go and see it. The problem these days is that it's expensive to go to the movie theaters and that's not fair. And that sucks. And I hate that. And I don't want, I hate living in a world where people can't afford to go to the movie theaters. That breaks my heart. But, um, but, you know, hopefully the pendulum will, like, swing the other way. And I think it's just going to take a couple really, really great, undeniable independent films to get people back in there. And I won't give up until it happens. Okay. And that's me and I'll be running for president <laughs> of the United Movies Association. Vote for me today. That was Aubrey Plaza. Her new movie, Emily the Criminal, is in theaters now. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
And finally, here's my weekly chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, we talked about some puzzling cost-cutting decisions that have been happening at Warner Brothers Discovery. Here's my conversation with Suzanne. John, welcome and good morning. Good morning. Let's start with a startling cancellation. Yeah, well, you have heard the expression, coming to a theater near you, or as might be the case these days, coming to a streaming platform near you. But this time, how about not coming to a theater near near you, or not coming to a streaming service near you? This is the movie I'm talking about. The world needs to know what happened, and to know what he stands for. That kind of power is very dangerous. That is a clip from the trailer for Batgirl. It was assembled by DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers, or I guess I should say it's now being disassembled because the new owners of Warner's have decided to throw the $90 million movie in the trash. So no theatrical release, no HBO Max, and it's not an independent film. This is a cast that included J.K. Simmons, Brendan Fraser, and Leslie Grace as Batgirl. So if you are really looking forward to seeing Batgirl, you're going to need to find something else. Well, now, what does the studio do with that $90 million? Can they take advantage of it tax-wise? Of course. Of course they can. <laughs> it's called a write-off, and they will they will take full advantage of that so they can write it off against some profits that they make on some other movie. All right. Um, now, I remember when Netflix, about four years ago, decided not to release its movie Gore, and that movie starred Kevin Spacey as the author Gore Vidal. Spacey has been accused of sexual assault, as pretty much everybody knows, and just last week he was ordered to pay $31 million to the producer of his series House of Cards because he violated his contract's professional behavior clause. Was there any such problem with Batgirl? No. In fact, the allegation of its greatest sin is that Batgirl's creator did not make a good movie. David Zasloff, who's the head of the newly formed Warner Brothers Discovery Company, said he is trying to, quote, reset DC Entertainment, which is part of Warner's. Zasloff's lieutenants also canceled the planned anthology series Strange Adventures earlier this week, another DC spinoff. And I should say a little background. Discovery, whose channels include Discovery, HGTV, and Animal Planet, acquired Warner Media, which has Warner Brothers, HBO, TNT, a lot of other outlets from AT&T for $43 billion this March, and Zaslav's team folded the streaming news site CNN Plus before it even launched at a cost of $300 million. So the $90 million on Batgirl is just a drop in the bucket. And I'm quoting Zaslav now from remarks he made about his company's latest earnings, where the company lost $3.4 billion with a B in its most recent quarter. Zaslav said, we are going to focus on quality. I really want to know, though, what does it mean? What does it mean for me, the moviegoer? Well, I think it means that if you look at a company like Warner Brothers and Discovery, its parent, they're going to be spending less money. I mean, Zasloff has said that he wants to cut some $3 billion out of the company. And that might mean they're going to make more movies at a lower budget. It might mean they're going to close some channels. You know, if you get rid of CNN Plus, you have some savings there, even though you have another write off. So it's unclear what that strategy is going to be going forward, whether or not DC Entertainment will get a shakeup. 
But I got to say, one of the things that is bad about Batgirl, you know, and maybe it wasn't a good movie, it's a very rare DC movie. In fact, I think this is the first that starred a Latina actor, Leslie Grace Martinez, who is a Dominican Republic American. She starred in it. There's not been a DC movie that had a Latina lead. They canceled Gordita Chronicles, which was a well-reviewed um, series on HBO uh, Max that starred and was made by and was aimed at Latino audiences. Um, and Zaslav himself, I mean, they are trying to cut $3 billion. If he wants to cut money and save people's jobs, maybe he should look at his own compensation. Because last year, and I am not making this up, he took home $246 million. In any universe, that is obscene. Wow. Well, I, I want to note, though, that from what I've read, the studio said that the cancellation was no reflection on the young actress who plays No, no. In fact, the movie apparently had been tested and test audiences didn't like it. And rather than spend more money trying to fix it, they just decided to throw it in the trash can. Mm. Well, let's hope this does not become a trend. KPCC's John Horn, appreciate you being here uh, telling us what's going on in Hollywood. My pleasure. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brava. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment. Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.